The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Andrew Sandlin. Just a few things uh, to say about Andrew. He's a new friend, and uh, we're very glad to uh, have him here. We had a wonderful evening, Jenny and I, last night uh, with my family, with Andrew and his wife Sharon, in our home and uh, enjoyed fellowship very much indeed. Let me just tell you a little bit about Andrew. He's the preaching pastor at Cornerstone Bible Church, Santa Cruz County. I've actually been down to Santa Cruz. Anybody been to Santa Cruz? Kind of nice there. Uh, Good place to go in the winter especially. Faculty of Blackstone. He's on the faculty of Blackstone Legal Fellowship of the Alliance Defending Freedom. He's de Jong Distinguished Visiting Professor of Culture and Theology at Edinburgh Theological Seminary. He's president of the Center for Cultural Leadership and Andrew is a kind of a, well, I kind of refer to him as a bit of a Renaissance man. He's an in, interdisciplinary scholar, and he holds BA, a BA in English history and political science. He has an MA in English literature. He has taken doctoral work in English, and he holds a doctorate in sacred theology. And he's a member of the Evangelical Theological Society. And most important, he is married to Sharon, and they have five wonderful children and three grandchildren. And he's taken time out of, I know, a busy travel schedule for him to be with us here in Toronto today. So let's welcome uh, Andrew Sanders. Thank, Thank you. Well, good to see all of you. Um, my name is Andrew, and I came all the way from California tonight to talk about sex. Uh, <clears throat> seriously, it's uh, really great to, uh, to be here and uh, to see all of you. Um, I appreciate Joe, and in the short time I've known him, uh, I have uh, seen God's hand on him. He is certainly God's man, and to those that he's gathered around him, uh, Scott and David and Nita and Jenny and many others, I'm very grateful to all of you. Um, Hope that I can come back again. Hope I can get to meet some of you afterwards. I'm here with my dear wife, Sharon. We've been married almost 31 years now, and I uh, love her more now than I ever have before. Good to see my uh, friend of a long time, Dr. Don Garlington here. He's a New Testament uh, scholar of the first rank, widely published, and uh, also a fine Christian man. So I'm talking, uh, speaking on the topic, are Christian sexual ethics outdated? Um, the short answer is no, and we could go home. <laughs> but I'm giving the longer answer. So you might want to, uh, to take notes tonight, or at least take note tonight. Uh, and there will be a Q&A afterwards. So if I say something that utterly confuses you or infuriates you, you might want to think about a question. Uh, We uh, children of Western civilization are the inheritors of uh, two revolutions. Not one of us has escaped the effects of these revolutions. The first revolution was political and became social. The second was social and became political. The West of the last 50 years has arguably been shaped more by these two revolutions than any other two historical factors. To understand these revolutions is to understand our culture. The first is the uh, French Revolution, 
This revolution set the standard for every subsequent political revolution. The Russian, the Chinese, Cuban, Vietnamese, and Cambodian revolutions were only footnotes, even if massive ones, to the French Revolution. It was the first secular revolution in world history. The French Revolution overturned a corrupt and bloated Ancien Regime, allied with a corrupt and bloated church. Like all such revolutions, the abuses it engendered dwarfed the abuses it claimed to be abolishing. The cure was worse than the disease. Still, still, we can't imagine our world without the French Revolution. For one thing, it clearly established a state as a separate social institution, disentangling it from the medieval practice of allowing tasks that we now limit to the nation-state to pervade all of society. For another thing, the French Revolution ushered in an intentionally secular politics. The American War for Independence, whose rationale was entirely different from that of the French Revolution, did not formally recognize religion because the British colonies had already established Christianity. By contrast, the French Revolution intended to desacralize both the state and, by means of the state, the entire society. The state became an instrument of desacralization. Today, almost every Western state and society is intentionally secular. This socio-political secularism is the gift, that is to say, the curse of the French Revolution. The second revolution is more recent. It is the sexual revolution of the 1960s, centering in North America, England, and France principally. It didn't set out initially to change politics. It set out to change culture. It saw traditional Christian sexual ethics as retrogressive and stifling and the enemy of the good life. Its goal was to treat sex as recreation, an end in itself. If sex is an end in itself, boundaries around sex must be torn down as long as all participants consent to the sexual act. Therefore, almost all adult consensual sex was normalized. Mary Eberstadt has offered, I think, the best short definition of the sexual revolution I've ever encountered. She says it is, quote, the ongoing destigmatization of all varieties of non-marital sexual activity accompanied by a sharp rise in such sexual activity in diverse societies around the world, most notably the most advanced, closed quote. The United States often refers to its war for independence as the American Revolution. As Peter Jones observes, this moniker is a misnomer. The most influential American Revolution in my nation happened in the 1960s, not in the 1770s. The war for independence changed politics, but it did not alter society. By contrast, the 1960s, and in particular the sexual revolution, reshaped the entire social landscape. The expectations of men, the role of women, the timing of pregnancy, 
the fate of unborn children, the authority of the family, the prevalence of pornography, dating and courting rituals, as well as perception of what were previously known as sexual perversions. It's remarkable, isn't it, how the vast majority of controversial social issues today are the direct or indirect result of the sexual revolution. Have you ever really thought about that? Teen pregnancy, rampant divorce, abortion, parental notification laws, radical feminism, egg harvesting, artificial insemination, sperm donation, pornography, homosexuality, same-sex marriage. We, we simply can't imagine contemporary Western culture apart from the sexual revolution. Likely no other historical factor, except perhaps the French Revolution, has more shaped today's world than this one. Now, as heirs of this dramatically successful revolutionary coup, we Christians might ask ourselves, are then Christian sexual ethics outdated? Since we seem to have, to this point, lost the battle, should we abandon insistence on our ethical standards and redirect attention, for example, to gospel preaching, narrowly conceived, or uplifting life seminars, or spiritual self-help techniques? The short answer is no. The long answer is if Christian sexual ethics are outdated, then Christianity is outdated because a distinctive ethic inheres in Christianity. And sexual ethics are an indispensable aspect of those biblical ethics. More positively, let me put it this way, Christian sexual ethics are presently operative because the Bible, the propositional revelation of Christianity in which those ethics are most comprehensively disclosed, the Bible, I say, is presently operative. Or to speak more starkly, to argue for the obsolescence of Christian sexual ethics is to advocate the obsolescence of the Bible. As long as the Bible is authoritative, its sexual ethics are authoritative, not just in the church, but also in culture. We must then face head-on the incontestably clear biblical teaching about sexual ethics. In broad outline, what is it? Well, first, God created the sexes. Two sexes, and only two, male and female. Both were created in God's image. Woman, as the wife, was fashioned from man's very body in order to be in the closest possible proximity to him, physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and in every other way. Her chief calling is to assist him in their God-given task of stewardship dominion over God's creation. While from creation she is, she is subject to his loving, self-sacrificial authority, she is in no way ontologically inferior to him, that is, in her being. She's not a lower order of creature, but is equal to her husband and his and her being. Second, sexual intercourse in the Bible is reserved exclusively to marriage. Its chief but not exclusive objective is the propagation of a godly human race. The logic of God's sexual law seems clear. First, 
God wants one man to be committed to one woman for one lifetime, and sexual intercourse is the most intimate act of marriage, exhibits that commitment more than any other, except perhaps the giving of one's very life. Extramarital sex undermines the lifelong commitment of one man to one woman. Second, since procreation is the chief objective of intercourse, God's ideal plan is for children to be reared for him in a stable family with a father and a mother and, of course, siblings as God gives them. Extramarital sex tends to produce extramarital children not formally tied to a single marriage and its loving nourishment. Christian sexual ethics starts with this law, all sex is marital sex. There isn't another kind. Third, sexual intercourse in no way, is in no way sinful or even a concession to sin, but a delightful gift from God. The writer of Hebrews states, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed, meaning sexual intercourse, be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The book of Song of Solomon is a tender, sometimes erotic love song between a man and a woman as they prepare for marriage. There's not a trace of moral self-consciousness about marital sexual intercourse. It's true that the church fathers sometimes had a diminished view of sex and the human body, but this was due to the influence of pagan Greco-Roman ideas. They didn't get that conviction from the Bible, which depicts marital intercourse as beautiful, delightful, and holy. Fourth, certain specific forms of sexual intercourse are especially repellent. These include homosexuality, bestiality, and incest. Homosexuality is repugnant because it involves intercourse with creatures too much alike. Bestiality is repellent because it involves intercourse with creatures too much different. Incest is offensive because, like homosexuality, it involves intercourse with creatures too much alike. The Old Covenant civil penalty for these violations, like for adultery, is death. That's how seriously God takes these specific violations of sexual ethics. In confirming the ethics of the Old Testament church, our Lord laid down broad ethical norms for sexuality in the New Testament church. His teaching comes in two contexts. The first is divorce. Jesus declares that divorce is not permissible except on the grounds of sexual immorality. He states that in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Adultery, of course, is a subset of sexual immorality in which at least one of the participants is married. Jesus corrected false interpretations of the Old Testament about divorce, but he confirmed its prohibition of all sexual immorality. In the second context, our Lord declares that it is the heart, not the body, that spawns sins like evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. We might say that his point is to show that sin is ethical, not ontological. Our problem is not our bodies or the external world as such. Our problem is sin, which resides deep in our heart. In both cases, Jesus confirms the Old Testament standard that sex is reserved for marriage. The Apostle Paul elaborates on this inherited revelation in speaking particularly to the primitive churches. Two passages are especially pertinent. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, he writes in part, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He goes on to elaborate, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says also in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. That was put in there for the Presbyterians. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, both passages are striking in that Paul declares that specific unrepentant sins exclude one from the kingdom of God. Those sins include, but aren't limited to, sexual immorality and specific impurity, sensuality, orgies, adultery, and homosexuality. Paul's point is quite clear. Those whose lives are dominated by these sins have no part in the kingdom of God. Paul goes on to write, and I didn't quote this earlier, but I will now, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 9, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, clearly suggesting that some of his Corinthian readers had been sexually immoral, but had been washed of this and other sin and declared righteous on the basis of the atoning work of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. His point is that the sexually immoral can and should be converted, but that in conversion they leave their immoral and their covetous and their drunken and so forth life behind. Nor does Paul indicate that these sins may never creep back into the believer's life. The apostle who wrote Romans 6 through 8, however it may specifically be interpreted, would hardly suggest that sin no longer has a place in the Christian life at all because it demands such a continual spiritual struggle. But it is a struggle that Christians are expected gradually to overcome in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if one professes faith but drifts back into an unrepentant, sin-dominated life, he can expect nothing but spiritual death. Let me state Paul's reasoning very starkly. If you live in unrepentant sexual immorality, you can't be a Christian. The fact that this comment might sound jarring shows just how far the church has drifted from Christian sexual ethics. In broad outline, Christian sexual ethics are abundantly clear. The problem isn't lack of clarity in the Bible, it's lack of fidelity in the church. The church, in fact, hasn't been immune from the sexual revolution. Indeed, we might say that the church at some points has increasingly been a nearly willing collaborator At the very least, the church has been lazy and reluctant to insist on distinctively Christian sexual ethics. In this, as in much else, the church, even the evangelical church, has been consistently accommodationist, in the language of the late Francis Schaeffer. 
The sexual revolution has reached its filthy paws into the church, and the church has capitulated again and again and again, first with recreational contraception, then with easy, no-fault divorce, then with premarital sex, then, in some cases, with abortion, and now, more recently, with homosexuality and even same-sex marriage. Marriage in apologetic quotation marks. This capitulation is an utter betrayal of the sacred trust of sound biblical teaching, which leads to the only sexuality that pleases God, and in the end, the only one that delights man. This betrayal began in the pulpit. Church leaders are often more interested in popularity and in megachurches and huge budgets than they are with pleasing God. This isn't a new problem, of course, but the specific sphere of betrayal is new. And the fact that this fear is the core of human life, marriage, discloses how dire our church situation is. Let's touch briefly on several of these steps of uh, worldly accommodation. The Bible does not forbid contraception, even artificial contraception, so the traditional Roman Catholic view is not, in my view, correct. However, since the sexual revolution, artificial contraception has increasingly been employed to guarantee recreational, consequence-free, illegitimate sex, including in the church. There's a fine line between contraception as a means of preventing pregnancy in a marriage whose spouses need, for example, physical respite from childbearing, and contraception as a means of eluding God's requirement in marriage to be fruitful and multiply, or a means simply of engaging in recreational sex for fornicators and adulterers. By her silence about recreational contraception, the church has collaborated with the sexual revolution. Similarly, the Bible permits divorce on certain specific grounds, but the church has capitulated in the wholesale marital covenant-breaking that we see around us. It's endemic in our society. Incompatibility, irreconcilable differences, boredom, communication breakdowns, and falling out of love aren't valid warrants for divorce. The recent Western divorce culture is nourished in the historical outworking of human autonomy spawned by the Enlightenment in revolt against European Christian culture. It means I'm permitted to do whatever pleases me as long as I don't harm anybody else. In time, the most sacred institution that God created, marriage, was compelled to bow before this relentless pursuit of autonomy. When the church refuses to hold its members to biblical marital standards, refuses to excommunicate recalcitrant divorcees, it collaborates with the apostasy of the sexual revolution. This is why the divorce rate in the evangelical church is at least similar to that of the surrounding secular culture. That's the price we pay for accommodating the sexual revolution. That's good preaching, Reverend Sandlin. Thank you. The church's accommodation extends to unmarried young adults. Two widely discussed recent surveys mentioned in Christianity Today noted that anywhere from 45% to 80% of unmarried professed evangelicals admitted to having sex within the last year. The only controversy in the article was whether the actual figures are closer to 45% or 80. 
percent. If the reality stands closer to the conservative side, it means that half of unmarried professed evangelicals have violated God's sexual standards. The pressing figure is one the article did not address. How many of them routinely engage in illicit sex? How many are unrepentant serial fornicators? One reason they feel comfortable in the church is that the pulpits don't teach biblical ethics. And in the congregation, there's no expectation that teenagers and young adults will live chaste lives. The omission isn't simply negative, that is, declarations of God's ethical standards in his law. It's also, sadly, a positive omission. Our churches don't encourage unmarried adults to be chaste and to exercise faith in the Holy Spirit to sustain them. And we don't pray with them and for them to live such God-honoring lives. Moreover, too often we've purchased stock in the delayed marriage ethic, sweeping the West. According to this ethic, marriage is a reward for young adults who are already successful in their careers, already financially secure, already well-practiced in sexual relationships. This modernist ethic puts an onerous burden on young adults. The Bible, as I noted, recognizes the sexual drive itself as healthy. Sex is holy and pure. The desire to get married and enjoy sexual intercourse and resultant children is a holy desire. Intentionally delaying that committed consummation in order to fulfill secular dreams of the good life is to defy God. Frederica Matthews Green, an Eastern Orthodox writer, commentator, is correct, therefore, when she writes, quote, teen pregnancy is not the problem. Unwed teen pregnancy is the problem. It's childbearing outside marriage that causes all the trouble. Restore an environment that supports younger marriage, and you won't have to fight biology for a decade or more. Closed quote. You might want to think about that last sentence. When the church accommodates the trendy delayed marriage ethic, she subjects her unmarried adults to unwarranted pressure and reinforces the temptation to worldliness. Alternatively, and because of the efforts of men like Francis Schaeffer, Harold O.J. Brown in the 70s, the evangelicals' record in opposing abortion has been more praiseworthy. Yet evidence exists that younger evangelicals are less committed to the pro-life position than their parents. But the pressing issue today in the church, the latest transformation by which the sexual revolution is bulldozing everything in its path, is homosexuality. For 40 years, evangelicals have capitulated to the sexual revolution. So why stop at homosexuality? Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Jim Wallace, not surprisingly, now support same-sex marriage. They got these uh, distinctions quickly, this change of conviction. It just came along just all at once, just all at once. And in some cases, they're not entirely clear on whether they believe homosexuality itself is sinful. Fuller Seminary New Testament professor Daniel Kirk, a younger evangelical, recognizes the biblical prohibition of homosexuality but publicly expresses hope that just as God 
abolished circumcision as an essential mark of covenant inclusion, he one day might reverse his prohibition of homosexuality. Hmm. The insurmountable tension in which all of them live is that as evangelicals, they must pay at least formal lip service to the Bible. But the Bible incontestably prohibits homosexuality in the clearest terms. So these liberal evangelicals are increasingly forced to jettison a high, that is to say a consistently evangelical view of the Bible. They have come to terms, if only intuitively, with what one of the early mainline Protestant evangelicals, Gary Comstock, wrote 20 years ago in his book, some of you may have heard about it, early book in their movement, Gay Theology Without Apology. He wrote, I skirt established Christian scripture and tradition to gain autonomy, to locate within myself, my own life, to escape an external authority and find an internal authority. This is an act of independence, he writes, not of rebellion. Although some of us homosexuals in the church have said that this passage, he's speaking of Leviticus 18 and 20, which imposed the death penalty in the Old Testament for homosexuality, Although some of us have said that this passage is but a single reference in a huge document that otherwise ignores us, I have to ask, how many times and in how many ways do we have to be told that we should be killed before we take it seriously? Is not once enough? Close quote. How many times indeed? Comstock is wrong, he is a rebel against God, but he is honest about biblical teaching and doesn't profess an evangelical bibliology and draw a salary and funds from evangelicals while treacherously subverting biblical authority by un overturning the Bible's sexual ethics under the pressures of a trendy apostate culture. These biblical sexual ethics are no more outdated in the church than other biblical ethics are. In the matter of sexual ethics, professed Christians too often practice what I'd like to call cafeteria ethics. They select those standards presently trendy in the wider society. Today that includes opposition to human trafficking, opposition to ignoring the poor, opposition to racism. The Bible does support this opposition. But the fact that it just happens to align with trendy moral crusades suggests that Christians who champion these causes celebra aren't especially courageous. And when they neglect equally biblical ethics that are much less popular, these Christians are positively hypocritical. Less popular biblical ethics means sexual ethics today. In the prophetic words of the late Francis Schaeffer, accommodation leads to accommodation, which leads to accommodation. The uh, seduction from a vocal defense and practice of biblical ethics can be detected in the altered discourse of Christian sexual ethics among evangelicals. In a recent interview in Christianity Today, Christianity Today uh, the new president of Calvin College, Michael Leroy, is quoted as saying this, Homosexuality is a very real issue for campuses. We have gay and lesbian students here. I have met with them. I have talked with them. They are Christians and they are trying to figure out what does this mean? How do I live? The scripture that I need to be obedient to leads me to the conclusion that marriage is a relationship between man and woman and sexuality is to be used in that context. 
I say that in the spirit of humility. It breaks my heart the way that statement makes other people feel. That's the struggle. I've said this to the board of trustees, he means at Calvin, and I've said this to the gay and lesbian students. We're going to struggle, continue to struggle with this issue. He goes on to say, anybody who speaks in platitudes or thinks it's simple to be a faithful and wise Christian in these issues is overlooking something. I don't think there are very many people who report on those issues in ways that aren't cliches and stereotypes. The politicization scares me the most about this issue. It can throw a whole college off track and hurt a bunch of students. Close quote. We might inquire first, since Paul writes that unrepentant practicing homosexuals can't inherit the kingdom of God, how can President-elect Leroy call them Christians? Is he wiser than Paul? In addition, to exhibit the full force of the altered standards of discourse on this issue, let's replace homosexual and homosexuality with bestialist and bestiality. We have bestialist students here. I've met with them. I've talked with them. They're Christians. They're trying to figure out, what does this mean? How do I live? Anybody who speaks in in platitudes or thinks it's simple to be a faithful and wise Christian in these issues of bestiality is overlooking something. I don't think there are very many people who report on these issues like bestiality in ways that aren't cliches and stereotypes. The politicization scares me most about this issue and so on. Close quote. Should students be hurt and a campus politicized if the administration opposes bestiality? Should hurt feelings be the primary objective in addressing a sin that God declares like homosexuality and others warrants death? Or is it a cliche or stereotype to employ biblical language? Biblically, homosexuality is no less repugnant than bestiality, and the old covenant civil penalty at that time was identical. Let's be clear. Our heart should break for sinners, including professed Christians, trapped in this sin or in any other sin. Their hope and our hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ and repentant obedience under the Holy Spirit's power. No Christian should shun an unconverted homosexual open to the gospel or a Christian who's fallen into this sin and is looking to get help to stop it. But I ask, why have some evangelicals adopted a discourse of non-confrontation toward unrepentant sinners and one of blunt censoriousness toward Christians who simply want to abide by biblical sexual ethics and use biblical language in evaluating this sin? The answer, I believe, is accommodation. They're more interested in accommodating an apostate culture than in a pleasing God. And I must say as a warning to all of us, We Christians won't get away with shining as light in a dark culture. John 15 is very clear about that. Jesus said so. Evil men and women will make us pay the price for following Jesus, including his sexual ethics. CNN recently reported that Christians who stand for Christian sexual ethics have become a hated minority. Sometimes accused of hate speech with the hint that their speech might invite criminal action. For this reason, and for the simple fact that Christians don't prefer to be labeled bigots, increasing Christians who still oppose homosexuality are repugnant to say so. Joe Carter, editor for the Christian Coalition, wrote recently, it's getting to the point where churches are not going to say that any sexual activity is wrong. Closed quote. 
This reluctance, too, is the fruit of evangelical accommodation. That's with reference to the church. Now let's talk with reference to the culture. If Christian sexual ethics are authoritative in the church, there can be no question about their normative character. God desires and demands that his people obey him sexually in a very particular way. Does this sexual normativeness transcend the church? Does God demand exclusively marital heterosexuality, for example, of everyone? He does. Both the Old and New Testaments teach that God's sexual ethics bind believer and unbeliever alike. While the so-called cultic or sacrificial stipulations of the Old Covenant were temporary and always meant to be temporary, Sexual ethics are indispensable stipulations of the moral law that reflect God's unchanging character. Laws forbidding rape, incest, fornication, bestiality, adultery, and so forth are not laws designed to erect a temporary typical barrier between Jew and Gentile, nor temporary laws prefiguring the redemptive work of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Rather, these sexual laws, part of what we might call God's moral law, depict God's immutable character and therefore can no more pass away than he can pass away. For this reason, Jesus verifies the authority of the revelatory moral law in Matthew 5. For this reason, Paul says in Romans 7, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul's quarrel was never with the moral law as such, but only with the widespread attempt to abstract that law from Jesus Christ and to turn it into a system of works righteousness. We shouldn't be surprised, therefore, that in the Old Testament, God's moral law binds Gentiles and not only Jews. He warns Israel that it was precisely for the Gentiles' violation of his moral law that he delivered to the Jews in the Ten Commandments, that he expelled the pagans from Canaan. He says it plainly in Deuteronomy 8. God inspired the Jewish prophets to indict the pagan Gentiles for their depravity right alongside the Jews. You ever read Isaiah? Read Isaiah straight through sometime if you can. And in about chapters 14 through 24, it's amazing how God addresses the Gentile nations right along with the Jews and indicts them right along with the Jews in some of the same language. The New Testament reinforces this theme. In Romans 1, of course, Paul catalogs the sins of the Gentiles that elicit his judgment. These sins are all violations of the Old Testament moral law. Paul goes on to indict the Jews for these same sins, these same sins. He writes that the Gentiles who lacked the written law will be judged by their conscience on which God has written that law. The Jews, meanwhile, will be judged by the written Mosaic law, which God had graciously bestowed on them. It's critical to note that Jew and Gentile are judged for violating the same moral law. This is why Paul goes on to declare in chapter 3 and verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. God's moral stipulations bind all humanity, not just the church. The cost of breaking God's moral law is steep, not just eternally in hell, but temporally on earth. 
We shouldn't be surprised, therefore, at the bitter consequences of the sexual revolution in our culture. Ironically, the most injurious consequences have fallen on women and children. I say ironically because the fiercest advocates of the sexual revolution, social progressives, constantly profess care for the weakest and most vulnerable in our society. Yet, as with the case in the case of abortion, their advocacy of the sexual revolution belies their concern. Women want a committed, loving man to care for them and their children. The sexual revolution turns the man into a freewheeling, irresponsible playboy. Women want men to do their fair share of the domestic duties, but the sexual revolution gives them no incentive to stay around the house, except to play video games, perhaps. Women want romance, but the sexual revolution invites pornography that objectifies women and makes the female a Gnostic, unattainable, airbrushed digital photo that no actual woman in the world could live up to. Eventually, sex is severed from intimacy and reduced to technique. In this narcissistic view, the aged and the physically disabled are unworthy of sex. Women are most harmed by this attitude. Children haven't fared any better under the sexual revolution regime, if I may call it that. Illegitimacy. But who even uses that word nowadays? Illegitimacy and divorce have wreaked havoc on children, leaving them often fatherless and splitting their time between two harried parents. Moreover, pedophilia and its gradual normalization have jeopardized vulnerable children. This is not even to mention the most disastrous consequence of all, the murder of millions upon millions of children via legalized abortion, which is a horrifically bitter fruit of the sexual revolution. Recall that for the sexual revolution, abortion is contraception's permanent backup plan. And it's simply impossible to envision the abortion holocaust without the sexual revolution. Then, as they, the children, grow older and attend high school and college, the tragedy doesn't abate. Ours is a youth hookup culture, meaning, again, as Eberstadt says, quote, one or another kind of sex act at any given time between people who may or may not know each other with the understood proviso that the act leaves no strings attached. Close. No Strings Attached, in fact, is a movie starring Natalie Portman and Ashton Kutcher about hookup culture. Today's secular college campus is the petri dish of the sexual revolution. It's where young adults set for life their sexual habits. And if those habits are shaped by the sexual revolution, they include sexual profligacy, male irresponsibility and machismo, and female objectification and often abandonment. We also can mention date rape, egg harvesting, and alcoholism, the last linked increasingly on campus with indiscriminate sex. These are just some of the results of the great social experiment of the sexual revolution in the campus petri dish. Now, adult men would seem to have fared better, best, in fact, under the sexual revolution. This, again, is ironic because most social progressives are also feminists who deplore any male hierarchy. 
But I must say, if there ever was a male hierarchy in the contemporary world, the sexual revolution has helped produce it. Men get the freedom of recreational sex without a commitment to wife and children. They get the freedom to porn without social stigma. Men get all of the fun and none of the guilt. Let the women and children suffer the consequences. I would say that's a male hierarchy of a very perverted sort. This is the message, if far from the intended one, of the sexual revolution. Yet men too, I must say, do suffer consequences. The irresponsibility spawned by the sexual revolution has bequeathed the generation of grown-up, effeminate juveniles who can't hold a job longer than a few months, won't cultivate a woman's love, won't spend time rearing children, who know more about gaming than about character. They suffer biological consequences too, and not merely occasional venereal diseases. Neuropsychiatry is showing that extensive exposure to pornography rewires our brain for sexual dissatisfaction. Pornography resets neural pathways, creating the need for a type and level of stimulation not satiable in real life, writes Holly Finn in the Wall Street Journal. The user is thrilled, then doomed. Porn is not a harmless diversion. God is not mocked. Christian sexual ethics are not outdated in the culture, and God's consequences unleashed on those who intentionally violate those ethics aren't outdated either. Let us talk toward the end here about same-sex marriage. Homosexuality isn't new. It's likely nearly as old as human sexuality itself. Some societies have been rife with it, and not just ancient Sodom and Gomorrah. What is new is the public normalization and ultimate legal recognition of homosexuality. That is, same-sex marriage, which is the pressing social issue of our time. It is not pressing because Christians have pressed it. It's pressing because homosexuals have relentlessly pressed for utter social routinization. Same-sex marriage is merely the logical culmination of their radical routinization agenda. By routinization, I mean the blithe acceptance of homosexuality as no more odd than relatively rare human social phenomena like red-headedness or left-handedness. We wouldn't say red-headed or left-handed people shouldn't marry, would we? Well, this is routinization. Its next agenda item is to marginalize and oppress anyone who either vocally opposes or in time refuses to support homosexuality. Now, in light of this routinization program, including among prominent evangelicals, we might want just quickly to revisit the Bible's teaching regarding it. The notorious case of God's incineration of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah is the first time we obviously encounter this sin. This episode is significant because it predates the divinely dictated moral law given at Sinai and, as far as we know, was not a part of God's propositional revelation orally communicated before that time. It shows that homosexuality is such an obvious sin that it can be known in nature. Paul says this explicitly in Romans 1. Nature was created by God. We live in a God-rigged universe. This is why no one ever, ever, ever gets away with sin. While sin is a personal affront to God, and while he punishes it personally, he also designed the universe itself 
as a disincentive to sin. One disincentive is that it discloses to our conscience specific grievous sins that we know, in spite of what we might say we know, deserve God's wrath. According to Paul, one of those sins is homosexuality. So the men of Sodom not only were sinful, they knew they were sinful, and they knew that their sin deserved God's wrath, just as homosexuals and others know in their heart of hearts today. The Bible states that God incinerated these cities because of their unrepentant evil. There's no dispute about what the text says. There's equally no dispute about what specific sin elicited God's wrath. That is, at least among people committed to a normal grammatical historical reading of the Bible. God hates homosexuality and he incinerated two ancient cities that were enamored of it. In Leviticus 18 and 20 that I've already mentioned, God lays out his verdict on homosexuality in articulating the sexual regulations of his moral law under the Old Covenant. And that verdict is very blunt. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Both passages appear in lists of prohibited sexual behavior, behavior, including bestiality and incest. Both times, the sin of homosexuality is described as an abomination. The Hebrew expression refers either to ritual or ethical uncleanness. So it won't suffice to say, as some critics of the conventional view do, that the fact that certain foods are also deemed unclean in this passage shows that homosexuality was obviously a ritual or temporary uncleanness. Homosexuality, like other sins, is detestable in God's sight. In those passages, it is homosexuality and not the other violations that demands the death penalty. The fact that it prescribed this penalty, even if both guilty parties are unmarried, exhibits that the death penalty was not leveled on account of any adultery. This was the case, not the case, with simple heterosexual fornication, as you know if you've read the Old Testament. There's no serious dispute about the general import of this passage, no matter how individuals may wrangle over the particulars. And I recommend the book some of you know about, Robert Gagnon's just massive book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, that addresses these issues in an overwhelming way. The exegesis is just clear. We've already surveyed Paul's teaching to the churches at Corinth and Galatia, but his most extensive and forceful treatment of homosexuality is found, of course, in Romans one, which catalogs the sins of the Gentiles in distinction from God's covenant people, Jews, exposing them to God's righteous anger. Paul mentions both male homosexuality as well as what we today term lesbianism. He refers to this sin as dishonoring their bodies, that is, treating their bodies with contempt. It's contrary to nature, he says, and like idolatry is, as Gagnon says, quote, a deliberate suppression of the truth available to the pagans and the world around them, closed quote. This is why Paul links idolatry and homosexuality. Both are intentional assaults on God's moral law disclosed in nature, not only in the Bible. Two other chilling facts stand out. First, Paul doesn't say that God will judge homosexuality. He says that homosexuality itself is God's judgment on a rebellious, idolatrous culture. 
God handed the ancient pagans over to homosexuality since they had turned their back on him to worship and serve idols. The consequences of homosexuality on the human body and life constitute God's temporal judgment. Second, we can infer that for Paul, homosexuality is in some sense, in some sense, an ultimate sin. We shouldn't be misled that every sin is equally repugnant to God, as you hear some preachers preach sometimes. And every sin is worthy of equal temporal judgment by statements like that in James 2, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For example, Mark 3.29 refers to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as an eternal sin that cannot be forgiven, however we interpret that, and it's variously interpreted controversially. Whatever. Obviously, this sin is weightier than other sins. Analogously, homosexuality as social depravity is the culmination of an apostate culture. When we detect wholesale homosexual practice, we're witnessing God's judgment on a culture. Of course, we just don't know how many homosexuals reside, even in our case, in North America. The Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law, uh, a sexual orientation law and public policy think tank, estimates that 9 million, about 3.8% of Americans identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. The Institute also found that bisexuals made up 1.8% of the population, while 1.7% are gay or lesbian. Transgender adults make up 0.3% of the population. Whatever the accurate figures, homosexuals constitute a minute minority, despite the perception with the PR windfall for the homosexual agenda that homosexuality is pervasive. God won't wink at such perversity, even among a minority. But especially troubling is the increasing approval of the solemnization of this perversity as marriage. Perhaps in some sense, it is this cultural approbation by heterosexuals that infuriates God even more than the sexual perversion itself. If you don't believe that, read the last verse of Romans chapter 1. In conclusion, note the following. First, we're witnessing the collapse of a massive plausibility structure. By plausibility structure, I mean what uh, Peter Berger has described as a humanly constructed, coercive objectivity that has gained the, quote, in his terms, power to constitute and to impose itself as a reality, close quote. For thousands of years of human history, what marriage is was taken for granted. Throughout history, it has been assaulted, it has been injured, it has been diluted, but it has never been redefined. Even with some polygamy, never been redefined. The fact that the West in recent years is the first civilization in human history to redefine marriage verifies our apostasy. Our civilization was shaped by both Christian culture, one, and by the Greco-Roman world, two. Christianity has been unwaveringly opposed to homosexuality. The sophisticated paganism of Greece and Rome, unlike Christianity, was lax about homosexuality, but not about the definition of marriage. Quote, even in cultures very favorable to homoerotic relationships, as in ancient Greece, something akin to the conjugal or traditional view has prevailed. Nothing like same-sex marriage 
was even imagined, close quote. This is in the book, some of you have seen What is Marriage by uh, Gurgis Anderson and uh, Robert George, a fine work. In creating same-sex marriage, our civilization is overthrowing an entire history of the definition of marriage. Second, same-sex marriage is simply the latest in a series of breathtaking cultural deviations spawned by the wholesale abandonment of biblical faith in the West. We wasn't make the mistake of seeing same-sex marriage as a standalone issue that Christians can combat with standalone techniques. Same-sex marriage isn't even merely one aspect of a broader apostasy ignited by the sexual revolution. Rather, same-sex marriage is a logical sequence in an entire chain of apostate reasoning. Leftism, since the French Revolution, has engaged in one big emancipation project, what Kenneth Minogue terms the oppression-liberation nexus. The leftist religion has become one of clawing for the liberation of humanity from every tyranny, real or imagined. The secularists must be emancipated from the religionists. The parishioners must be emancipated from the clergy. The enlightened from the unenlightened. Citizens from royalty the poor from the rich, the workers from the capitalists, blacks from whites, women from men, wives from husbands, children from parents, debtors from creditors, employees from employers, homosexuals from heterosexuals, convicts from law-abiding citizens, and soon, if the trajectory persists, polygamists from monogamists and pedophiles from prison guards, the great emancipation now extends even to non-human nature, the emancipation of, quote, the environment from a rapacious humanity. The oppression liberation nexus has become such a successful program that we can't make sense of the last few centuries without it. Same-sex marriage is at the moment the controversial cutting edge of its merciless saber that has since the French Revolution annihilated every perceived, every perceived cultural hierarchy. This saber cuts a broad and deep swath, and its work is far from finished. If this is the case, it follows third, that while Christians welcome specific secular arguments for marriage that contribute to sound public policy, our civilization can't eventually avoid a head-on clash between Christian sexual ethics and non-Christian sexual ethics. The problem with secular arguments for sexual ethics, including arguments for traditional marriage, is that they spring from the same root as arguments for same-sex marriage, human autonomy. Able secular proponents of traditional marriage argue, quote, for the common good, for, quote, human flourishing. Only marriage can give us happy, well-balanced children. Only marriage can give us strong family bonds. Only traditional marriage can give us useful citizens, and so on. The problem is that many advocates of homosexuality see a society that discriminates against same-sex marriage as not a common good. And even were they to grant that, quote, traditional marriage fosters more well-adjusted families, they would insist that a sexually discriminatory society must be abolished, whatever the cost. For them, the right of homosexuals to marry is part of the common good. 
For these homosexuals, what constitutes good is not held in common with traditional marriage advocates. It is not, therefore, the common good or human flourishing to which Christians must appeal ultimately, but to the word of God. Therefore, the Christian stake in the same-sex marriage debate isn't merely to preserve marriage as an institution. It's to recover a biblical way of thinking and living and its religious presuppositions that demand marriage. Sexual ethics are a single cloth woven of many strands, and to remove one is eventually to unravel the entire cloth. The Enlightenment got rid of the Bible as binding revelation. Romanticism elevated the individual's feelings and emotions as paramount to the authentic life. Existentialism resituated ethics as human choice. Postmodernity and multiculturalism undermined metanarratives, including ethical metanarratives, and glorified moral relativism. Pluralism installed the libertarian ethic expressed most pointedly in the aphorism, I'm okay and you're okay, as long as you're okay doesn't infringe on my okay. In such an ideational climate, rife on TV, internet, in elementary schools, universities, pop culture, yes, even the church sometimes, same-sex marriage is a logical and reasonable social and legal fact. Indeed, not to have same-sex marriage in such a climate would be odd and counterintuitive. Same-sex marriage isn't compatible with Christian sexual ethics, but it is fully compatible with the guiding presuppositions and plausibility structures of Western civilization in the 21st century. In the end, then, there can be no convincing argument for marriage and against same-sex marriage not rooted in religious presupposition, dis presuppositions disclosed in creation and crystallized in the Bible. Therefore, the task of Christians committed as we must be to Christian sexual ethics is a robust gospel life, the Christian worldview summarized in the creation, fall, redemption paradigm. We must tell and show our sin-sick world that God's way isn't simply the best way among many options, but the only way, the only way that doesn't end in civilizational degradation and eternal damnation. Christian sexual ethics aren't repressive. They're beautiful because a loving God's way is infinitely preferable to a sinful man's way of ordering the world. We've tried man's sexual ethics for several generations now. Amid rampant divorce and broken families and fatherless children and the objectification of women and sex minus love college students and gender chaos, how about let's try Christian sexual ethics? Thank you very much. Now's our time for our Q&A. I'm Scott Masson, the college and career pastor here, by the way. Uh, I'm also an English professor. Um, and the reason I mention that is because uh, I'm going to moderate the Q&A session. And I'd like to hear questions from the audience. Questions are in the form of a who, where, why, what, or how. So please, uh, if you could, keep your questions brief to the point uh, on the topic. And uh, I'd appreciate uh, many questions and good questions to our very stimulating talk. Uh, the microphone is down here. So if I could get someone to uh, be brave and ask our first question, I'd invite those. Thank you. With uh, such compelling um, biblical support 
how can uh, the emerging church leaders ignore it? And what arguments do they use other than their own opinion to lead a flock and uh, in the face of just what is so obvious? Good question. Um, for the record, the ideas behind the emergent church were actually spawned about 100 yards from where I live. I live in California, did I tell you that? All of these bad ideas come from California. Or France, no. Uh, a number of those original guys that got together at Mount Hermon in the mid-90s um, had, um, from what I can tell, uh, good motivation. They uh, were, were ministering to younger believers, um, I mean younger chronologically, actually, those 20 years old and so, and they felt that the traditional church structures weren't working. I certainly can understand and identify with that uh, motivation. Uh, the, that movement, of course, split. Some is, quote, missional and some is emergent. They've gone in all sorts of different ways. But at least a number of them have come to a, an unbiblical position, as you indicate, on homosexuality. I think the reason for that is, one, they were committed uh, to a post-modern, many of them, epistemology, a view of knowledge, uh, such that essentially everything uh, is socially constructed. And it's as Nietzsche said it as uh, the Bible or anything else, it's interpretation all the way down, which is to say that you can't really encounter objective truth. And so if that's the case, then they can kind of make up their ethics, and they often do it uh, in, quote, community, the community, the, their church community gets together, and, you know, how is the Bible speaking to us? And um, this would, not surprisingly, in a culture that is given to this, these views, these sexual views, many of them were led by that failed view to not oppose homosexuality or insist on biblical ethics. Um, that is a sophisticated answer. I'd like now to give you my gut level answer, which is a lot of them are just worldly. A lot of them are just worldly. Um, and I would say this, and I don't mean in any way to be condescending. I was talking to my friends, some of you know uh, John Frame, great theologian, Dr. Garlington, one of his students. I was asking John one time, you know, isn't it odd that many of the emergent guys actually are saying the same things that theological liberals were saying about 80 to 120 years ago? Aren't they really the same? And Frame answered very quickly, yes, except the liberals were smart. Uh, so, I must say, honestly, a lot of them aren't really thinking through these issues from an exegetical standpoint. It's just they want to meet people and want the church to be appealing, and it's not really appealing to insist on biblical ethics. But I must say, according to the Word of God, part of being faithful to Christ is declaring the entire truth of God, not in a mean, cruel, incendiary, insulting way, in a loving, gracious way. But to be loving and gracious means to declare what the Word of God says. And unfortunately, Many of them have refused to do that. And increasingly, they're acknowledging. McLaren kind of, and uh, Tony Jones, and who's the other, uh, to, uh, a couple of the others are acknowledging we can't really hold our views as they have come and also hold to the authority of the Bible. They kind of know that. So they're kind of acknowledging, finally, our views aren't really compatible with the notion of the full authority of the Bible. It's good for them to acknowledge that, but that's, I think that's kind of a quick answer to, maybe not a quick answer, your excellent question. Thank you. Uh, why do you think the sexual revolution happened in the 1960s, and why in the West? Boy, that's a good question. Um, 
Why did it happen in the 60s and why in the West? I really don't know exactly. I mean, um, some might say the sexual revolution really started in Genesis 3, right? So um, I don't know. I mean, the West certainly had these dual influences of Christianity and Greco-Roman culture. And in, in North America, I mean, let's face it, both here in Canada and in the United States, there was a pervade in our history, a pervasive Christian influence and Christian culture. Not perfect. Yeah, there were problems. I, I fully acknowledge that. But there was a basic understanding of, of Christian ethics. I don't know why exactly it happened in the 60s, except for there was kind of a culmination. If, if you believe in the power of ideas, the culmination in the, um, in the 19th century, first of existentialism, and then later on sort of with Nietzsche uh, came along and Heidegger, early postmodernism, that uh, everything is socially constructed. I mean, that kind of began with Kant in a way, but specifically with, with, with Nietzsche, that basically we just, we're, we can make up our own mind about, so the idea of an objective standard that comes to us either from the written word of God or from nature, that was all little by little shunted aside, uh, particularly in the universities and elsewhere. And so I don't know why specifically in the 60s, but there is an interesting book I'll mention quickly. Um, have you heard of the book uh, written about four or five years ago called uh, the, Con uh, the Conquest of Cool, I think it's called? Uh, the author, whose name slips me, but if you Google it, you'll see it, makes the point that, you know, this accepted notion that there were these just radical revolutionaries at uh, Berkeley and the University of Wisconsin, and they were just sort of financed by nefarious causes, and out of nowhere they sprung up and misled, you know, the United States and Canada, is really false. He points out that even in the 50s, there was a sort of undercurrent, a collaborative culture in business and education and elsewhere. They were making little hints of changes in the world and the culture as it once was. So it wasn't just a few revolutionaries. It was a sort of a widespread revolution. Why it happened specifically in the 60s, apart from what I said and, um, and sort of post-modernity and existentialism and a denial of objective authority, the crisis of authority, I'm not quite sure. But give me about 30 more years to think about that and I'll have a better answer. I have a question. Um, you might not be aware of this, Dr. Sandlin, but it's currently before the Canadian Supreme Court. Uh, the motion is that prostitution become legalized um, as a way of uh, shielding prostitutes from some of the harms uh, suffered uh, from it being made illegal. I was just wondering if you could comment to that, because that's something that even though the talk was on sexual ethics, you didn't get to address. Could you just speak to that? Yeah, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't aware of that. Um, I, I would say, preface the answer by saying um, I certainly have um, libertarian uh, sympathies, but I don't think anybody who believes in the authority of the Bible can be a pure Randian libertarian like Ayn Rand or various others. We have to be governed, of course, by God's law. Um, I think even though it is consensual and even if it were limited if it were not adultery involved, which of course would never happen, even if that's the case, because this is, it is promoting, actively promoting promiscuity, uh, I think that the state, and by the state I mean the, the, the smallest element of the state, not so much the nation, but you would, in your case, provinces or cities, have a vested interest in discouraging uh, prostitution. I don't, think, I don't think it's an issue, and the Bible doesn't indicate it's an issue, like homosexuality. But I, I think it's something that should not be legal. That's my opinion. Good libertarians would disagree with me on that, but particularly as a result of the sexual revolution, that's, that's my viewpoint. 
Why is it that biblical sexual ethics doesn't come up in the pulpit very much, even in more conservative evangelical churches? Boy, that's a good question. Um, I think it didn't come up um, as much before the 1960s, and if you read the old sermons, you'll know this, because there wasn't a huge problem. Now, it wasn't an idyllic time, but it wasn't a huge problem. It didn't come up as much afterwards, and certainly today, because it is a huge problem. Um, I think that um, churches tend to be filled first with unmarried people who routinely engage in sexual activity. I think that uh, adultery is rife in many churches. Uh, I think that the sexual revolution has created a climate such that this is an off-limits issue. And I'm going to be addressing this tomorrow at the, what do we call it tomorrow we're meeting at? Yeah, the, the public-private divide has really infected the thinking of the church. That if it's out in the public, it can be addressed. But actually, sexuality is a matter of my sort of private sphere, and no one really should discuss that. Now, whether in evangelizing, that's one thing, or in going on missions trips, that's something that's visible. But sexuality is something that's very private, and so the church doesn't often declare those. But I must say that if you read even Paul, not just Paul, but if you read Paul, it's very clear. He's just very clear on this issue. It, it is an aspect, and I, let me make this clear. Uh, biblical sexuality is an aspect of gospel living. It's an aspect of living in the gospel. And it's, read it from what Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 6 through 8, and he begins gloriously, he's talking, of course, about baptism and being united with Christ and with the power, living in the power of the resurrection and counting or reckoning yourself dead and living in the power of the Spirit. And he just kind of, he just kind of goes on talking about that. Well, that is to live in the gospel. Those, living according to those ethics is to live in the gospel. But for some reason, I think because of the effects of the sexual revolution and its impact on society, including on Christians, it's just considered to be a largely verboten issue. And I will say this plainly. It's wrong. It's wrong. The Bible is clear on this. And yes, we all sin, and yes, we all fail. But we must conform ourselves by the power of the Spirit to the Word of God and not reshape the Word of God to our fallen condition. Excellent question. Uh, you had mentioned that um, people are getting married older and older because they have another plan in their life or an agenda. Um, what would be a practical way in which families should prepare their children to get married younger? Boy, what a great question. I, I, this is one of those that I, whenever I make the assertion that I did and the part that this questioner wisely asked about, there are always some that say, but look at our culture, and it's so difficult, and I acknowledge that point. This is not an easy thing. But I think, first of all, that uh, aside from the obvious spiritual training that we should give, we should train our young men and our young women to be mature. For young men, that means you need to think about a vocation, whether that's going to college or getting some training of some sort. You need to think about doing that so that you can support a, uh, that you, so you can support a family, um, rather than gaming. I don't know why I'm on this gaming phrase, but so many they are. It's just really sad. Now, no, it's not wrong to play video games, but when you're playing seven to eight hours a day or four hours a day, and you're missing meals because of this, and you won't talk to your wife or girl because of this. This is just wrong. It just really is wrong. I've got a bad attitude about that. It's God's fault. Um, in addition to that, though, um, I think we should make the church climate such to tell them that if you're mature, it's okay to get married. And by the way, you don't have to have, you don't have to have your college degree. 
You don't have to have all the beautiful house and furniture and then reward yourself by getting married. You start out and it's going to be rough. But you know what? If it's going to be rough, let it be rough with somebody you can spend your life with. Let it be rough with a fine, godly young woman or a godly young man that you can pour your heart and soul into. So I think those are a couple of suggestions for doing that. But it's a, it, this is where the church is failing miserably, failing miserably. Great book on this, by the way, not written by a Christian. Anybody of you, any of you read any books by Charles Murray? His latest is Coming Apart. Outstanding book on this topic, how this whole notion of delayed marriage is restructuring our entire society. And it's, it's, he points out the ominous implications of it. But excellent question. You just touched on a point right there about um, single men and women in the church marrying once mature. Um, so you have reformed evangelical churches from the pulpit telling their men to man up, get married, pursue a, a wife. But yet these men are not mature. Um, they're not holding their men accountable, but yet telling them to, to man up. Can you please address that? Oh, yes, ma'am. I, listen, I, first, I agree with that assessment. And the notion that we would say, well, you guys need to just really, really get married really fast if we don't also treat young men to be responsible, to be mature, to know how to treat a woman, to treat her with care and dignity. And by the way, fathers, you need to model that at home. It's not just that your sons will see that, by the way, but also your daughters will see that. Sacrificing for a wife, caring for a wife, loving your children. The church should gather around these single people, encourage them, love them. How many churches actually just pray, get the single people together and pray for God's purity, for God to bring them a godly spouse, that they're on their face before God and, the, and preparing them in ways of manliness and so on, so contra our culture today. Now, by the way, know this. Virtually everything outside those doors, virtually everything we hold dear inside here is hated and despised outside those doors. Virtually everything that we hold to be dear and sacred is held to be wrong, is held to be scoffed at outside those doors. If this, there's any time for the church to be countercultural, it is now. And that means adherence to the written word of God, not just on sexual issues, though that's what we're talking about tonight. That's the calling of the church. As hard as it is, that's the calling of the church. Um, from people that I have known who have called themselves Christians but have been struggling with homosexuality, yes. it seems to be a very complicated sin. It doesn't seem as simple as I went out and slept with a prostitute. Right. It, because there seems to be psychosis involved, there seems to be a very deep-rooted thing involved. Do you have anything to speak to that slightly as well in the light that I know some counselors are now not allowed to counsel people out of homosexuality? Even Christian counselors are not allowed to do that anymore. So I'm just thinking of uh, how do we give hope to people who are struggling with this issue? Boy, that's a great question. Uh, there is, of course, the argument on many sides about whether this is an issue of nature or nurture. Uh, as a Christian who believes in the authority of the Bible, um, I am strongly inclined to believe that no one is born with homosexual tendencies. But if I'm wrong, that's just a verification, if it happens, of the sinfulness of the human condition. I mean, we do believe in original sin, don't we? So that is a possibility. But in, in any case, it's a great question. First, we should have the courage, above all else, we should have the courage to open up the Word of God and say, this is what the Word of God says. I ask a question to all of these churches, this one not included, that claim to be Bible-believing. 
Why are you afraid to open up the Bible and say, this is what the Word says? And I know it's so difficult. So this is God's standard. Let's work toward this standard. Let's get together on our face before God and pray for the power of the Spirit and victory over sin. And we'll come alongside you. And when you have these temptations, call me. Call someone that can help you and encourage you. I, I think the most honest thing we can do is teach people the Word of God because the power of the Spirit, of God, the Holy Spirit of God, uses the Word of God to change people. Final, I want to say that, I want to emphasize that. I don't know why it is. We've bought into this naturalistic notion that, you know, therapy may or may not work. I will tell you according to the Word of God what works. The Holy Spirit of God works. We are biblical supernaturalists. We're not naturalists. We're supernaturalists who believe in the power of the Spirit of God to change people. And if you don't believe that, you can't be an evangelical. An evangelical believes we're changed by the power of the gospel. We're regenerated by the power of the gospel. Well, if the Holy Spirit's powerful enough to regenerate someone, he's certainly powerful enough to give that person victory over sin. So wonderful question, and I know people are struggling. But one thing is there's also this, I'll be done in a second, almost this culturally it doesn't help, the inevitability principle, such that if you have these ideas or thoughts that, oh, it's just normal, and oh, no, you're destined. If you have this same-sex attraction, that means obviously you're homosexual. Well, that isn't true at all. There are all sorts of temptations we have, and it's not inevitable. The only thing that is inevitable is what the Bible says is inevitable. Otherwise, God changes history. Um, while I agree with what you're saying, um, it seems to me there's a danger in talking about this and uh, without some further qualification because um, it seems to me that um, there's obviously a difference between having sinful dispositions and desires and sin acting sinfully, right? And, and my and, language that I used, I tried, I didn't say that specifically, but I, I tried to talk about homosexual activity or acts. I agree with that. Right. Um, and it, you're making the point about um, biblical supernaturalism and the role of the Holy Spirit to change us, as even referred to 1 Corinthians 6, I think verse 11, as some of, as some of you were, yes. used the past tense and so on. Um, the, the issue, though, is that um, in that passage, it's talking about uh, sinful practices. I know I need to ask a question. Um, <laughs> it's hard to ask a question about this without, sorry. Um, isn't there a danger in talking about biblical supernaturalism with the role of the Holy Spirit changing people when we're talking about homosexual disposition and not simply homosexual practice? Good question. I would say that, not necessarily, but I, I agree with you. I need to elaborate on that. Let's move it out of the sphere of homosexuality to heterosexual lust. Let's say that there is a, a man who is married, and for whatever reason, he tends to have specific desires for a woman that is not his wife. Well, how would we counsel that person? We certainly would make a distinction between the act of adultery and the desires he has, which would lead to adultery. But nonetheless, those desires, if left unaddressed, are sinful. Now, temptation is not a sin. To be tempted is not a sin. But to acquiesce and allow the fueling of the imagination. So the Holy Spirit, who can change us and can, through the power of the Spirit of God, for Jesus Christ rather, to forgive us, he also can address and change those desires. Now, notice what I said. That's kind of revolutionary. The Holy Spirit can change our desires, not just our actions. It's the most wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit. He can change our desires, not just our actions. 
after all. What is the gospel? But not the changing of a desire. We're all sinful. We have sinful desires. And the Holy Spirit opens our heart to the truth. And then, oh, the gospel is wonderful. Beforehand, it didn't look good, but now it looks great because the Holy Spirit opens our heart to the truth. So, excellent question. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the abortion issue is such a lightning rod yes. uh, in Canada. Uh, and I mean, I'm no authority in the area, but it, it seems that, I mean, the government has, if not given up, they've just decided definitely not to touch it. Mm. They're just not going to open it for debate. Mm. And, you know, I, I have, I'm of two minds on that. One is, of course, well, gee, it would be nice if we had a prohibition against abortion. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, by not having the law, but in, in supporting free speech and so on, support that, that allows, you know, in the public square, the ideas in the public square, let's try and win this thing in the public square. And my question is, what's the right way to handle this abortion issue? Because no matter who you talk to, it's it's a very emotional issue. And yeah. I, I mean, I remember reading a book many years ago uh, out of Harvard University and called The Clash of Absolutes. And, uh, you know, it's where, you know, on the one side, you know, the, the fetus has no rights, has nothing. On the other side, the woman supposedly has no right, no right, status. Right. And, and it's just, uh, you know, it just goes over the top. Uh, it's it's a very it's a very hard to control issue. What is your yeah take uh, on good it? point? Uh, it's uh, I don't think it's an either or but a both and. I'm not sure what are the laws. Are there you have any you have national laws about abortion? There is no there is no law in Canada. None whatsoever. None. Nothing. No. So you can you can abort throughout the entire pregnancy. Okay, that's really bad. <laughs> um, <clears throat> So I think both of those, I, I believe that because the, um, the scripture indicates, and I believe nature itself also reveals that uh, life begins at conception, that the unborn child should be legally protected, just like a born child would be protected. But I'm not saying by, I'm not saying by that that there should be, the Christian should only advocate coercive political action. I agree entirely that we should be arguing and debating about this issue. And I agree with incremental steps. I think it was the, um, in our country, uh, the, the Texas legislature, um, Texas is not a bad state, by the way. Uh, the Texas legislature is trying to restrict abortions to up to 20 weeks. Now, um, that's not perfect, but it's a lot better than what's going on right now. So I agree with incremental measures. But I agree, it's a very difficult issue. And it is, the Harvard article is correct. It's, it's, it's a clash of absolutes. I would say on this issue, the science increasingly tends to be on the side, happens, just happens, to be on the side of biblical truth. Because as we study more and more genetically and more and more about the DNA and the so-called fetus, the more we see, you know, this really is a human being, and miniature, a human being. But I, I don't want to detract from the fact that we should just say, well, let's just change all the laws immediately. Well, first, that isn't going to happen. And there has to be love and compassion with people that have been engaged in this. But I do believe that legally, children, including unborn children, all human beings, judicially innocent human beings, should be protected by law, and that includes unborn children. Hi, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I guess my question, or I'd, I'd like to ask you to expand on one of the points you made about um, the presence of homosexuality in a culture itself being God's judgment. And 
are there any cultures that you are aware of that don't really have homosexuality present as a result of their being obedient to God? Boy, that's a good question. I think, what, uh, to clarify a little, what I was saying is that it's not so much the presence of homosexuality as it is the um, that homosexu homosexuality itself is evidence of God's judgment of an, of an idolatrous culture. So what God does is a culture increasingly turns itself away from God, and God says, as it were, well, if you want to go that way, I'm going to allow you to dishonor yourselves and your bodies. And that's the language he uses in Romans, dishonoring your body. So the second part of the question was, do we know of um, any cultures that um, are holy cultures that oppose it? Is that what you were saying? Or I can't remember... Oh, oh, uh, well, certainly uh, previous cultures, like, you know, the, no doubt your country and, and even the United States years ago, uh, presently, you're talking about presently? Well, uh, I will say that uh, I believe it's in Uganda that it's uh, very, extremely illegal, and I believe that Uganda's passed uh, very strict prohibitions of homosexuality. Because of that, the, most of the secular West has turned on Uganda viciously, uh, isn't it really odd how liberals will often say, we need to listen to our third world brothers and sisters. They need to be leading us, these previously colonized people. They are the leaders of the revolution. And then the Ugandans say, you know what, homosexuality is really bad. Oh, heaven forbid that you say that. And we don't want you to lead us in that matter because you're backward and they're very condescending. So it's an odd irony. But yes, studying about Uganda, it is, it is interesting. There are a few other countries too, but excellent question. So I'm going to ask the last question here. Um, most of these, you talked about emancipation and freedom and the whole idea of the West being in a revolution, a revolutionary uh, uh, approach to culture since the, since the French Revolution in particular. The term that's bandied around most popularly and it's heard in the seminaries, it's heard in the university, is social justice. It's heard in the church. This is the term that students hear all of the time. This is the term that people are using, the emergent movements using in the church. Can you comment on the meaning of social justice uh, as it relates to the, the culture, and then perhaps talk about what the Bible means by justice by contrast? Yeah, social justice, excellent question. Social justice is almost always a sort of a code word for, for uh, socialism and uh, social Marxism. Um, <clears throat> by the way, a book on this that's written, I was just mentioning it earlier, I want to... I don't know how many of you have read uh, any books by the fine um, scholar Thomas Sowell. Uh, he's the Hoover Institution uh, in California as a fine conservative libertarian. Again, not a believer. But I would recommend starting with his book, A Conflict of Visions. Um, he's written a number of other books. But he talks about that very issue of two notions of justice. Now, biblically, the Bible certainly believes in uh, what we would call today retributive justice. That is, giving people their just desserts. If you steal something, you have to give back, and you have to give back in addition a certain percentage. If you take a life, your life will be taken. That's very clear. But modern ideas and modern liberalism, they tend to believe in distributive justice, which is a different matter. And that is the notion that not that everyone is equal under the law, but there should be equal results. And a society is not just if there are not equal results. That really is to deny that man is made in God's image. That's to deny that God gives different uh, capacities and different gifts to individuals. And so as a result of that, well, how do you accomplish this? 
I mean, how do you accomplish these results, these equal results? Well, the only way to do that, if people are actually different, it's discovered that they're actually different from one another, is by a very coercive arm. In the modern world, the coercive arm is the state. So when people talk about social justice today, almost always what they mean is get the state involved to tax people more to give us the money and the strength to get people to do what we want to do and to create a, a society led by elites. That's basically what it means. So don't be misled by sort of liberal buzzwords. And boy, social justice is one of them. I mean, doesn't it, isn't this one of these things that sounds great? It's one of those things that you never want to be against. You don't want to stand up in a meeting and say, bless God, I'm opposed to social justice. Who will join me? Nobody wants to say that. But if you actually rip off its pretended autonomy and say, well, let's unpack what that means. What you really mean is you want to use the coercive arm of the state to produce equal results because you don't really trust individual freedom and people to operate and live as God intended them to live, some being blessed more and some being blessed less. That's essentially. So when evangelicals, when evangelicals buy into this, they're just buying into a liberal line. And it's false. Not that conservatives are always correct. I'm not arguing that point. But social liberalism has, has largely gutted, gutted Western culture. And we're su suffering seriously from it. And of all churches, the evangelical churches stand up and say, we're not buying it, including social justice. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.